The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. All right, well, this morning uh, we turn to one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. It's certainly the most well-known psalm. Um, You know, I've met people who have never opened the Bible in their life, and they basically know two things about it. That it's about a guy named Jesus and the first line of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I mean, this is sort of the the basics. Um, As familiar as it is, though, what struck me about this psalm as I studied it this week was how packed it is. I mean, these six verses, I was reading through it and I was like, I could preach five different sermons from these six verses. Now, don't worry, this morning we're only going to do one sermon, okay? But this is the kind of psalm that rewards reviewings and rereadings and kind of taking a deep dive. The way I want to approach it this morning is to offer for your consideration that this well-known psalm, it's actually a poem about leadership. Okay? Now, a friend of mine named Brent Harriman, he's a pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee, he pointed this out to me about Psalm 23. And so, to give credit where credit is due, a lot of um, the, the best points in this sermon I learned from Brent, and I'm now passing on to you. So, Brent, if you ever listen to this podcast, um, everyone in Basalt, Colorado says, thanks, come out and visit us anytime. And I think you still owe me 10 bucks from the poker game that we had last time. Um, all right. I was just leaving Chicago to move here, so this was just over a year ago, and I saw someone wearing a t-shirt on the street, and, and the t-shirt just read, always lead, never follow, okay? Always lead, never follow, and the first thought that jumped into my mind when I saw that shirt is, man, I wonder if that's the single worst piece of advice that's ever been printed anywhere. Now, it probably isn't. There's probably worst advice that's been printed somewhere, but this is like monumentally bad advice, okay? Always lead, never follow. It's bad not only because um, it displays this unwillingness to learn, this lack of humility that we might actually need help or guidance. Um, It it displays this radical independence. Like, I'm self-sufficient. I can live on my own. I don't need anybody else. It, It communicates a disdain for any kind of authority or oversight or accountability. But worse than all of that, is that it's actually impossible to live that out, isn't it? All of us are followers. All of us are looking to someone to lead us somewhere. We're all looking to something. I mean, some of this is just as simple as calling up our our accountant during tax season and saying, wait, what do I do with this form? I mean, we need help. We need guidance. Some of it's as, um, as simple as, you know, looking up the fashion blog to see what next season's thing is going to be so you can be, you can be in on it, which, you know, it took me a long time to come up with that illustration. I do that regularly. Um, it's also, though, as life-changing as being taken under someone's wing professionally, right? A mentor that you look up to. And what they do is they help you navigate your early years in your career and they advocate for you in your field. It's also as profound as thinking through 
who has impacted our lives the most? Parents, friends, siblings, spiritual mentors. So a question to get us going is this. Who is leading you in your life right now? Who do you look to for guidance? Could be small, could be big, but who are you following? Who um, is your guide? Who is your shepherd? Because it's inescapable. We all breathe and we all follow somebody. And so in line with our Advent series in the Psalms, Psalms 23 is asking us to consider this universal human question. The question is not if we have a shepherd, but who that shepherd is and where that shepherd is. And the answer that we receive like a gift in Psalm 23 is that world-famous first line, the Lord is my shepherd. That's an incredibly profound first line. This poem is about a God who leads his people, his flock, his children. The God of the Bible, that triune, love-filled, grace-overflowing, merciful, powerful king of creation, is the shepherd and the guide that our souls are crying out for, whether we even know it or not. We will follow somebody, and there is an offer on the table for the Lord to be your shepherd. This psalm shows us why we need that so much. Uh, God leads his people, we're going to see, with care. God leads his people into rest, and God leads his people by grace. That's kind of where we're heading. So how does God lead? God leads his people with care. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One commentator, one theologian I was reading this week said that this um, image of God as our shepherd is probably the most comprehensive and intimate image of God in all the Psalms, maybe in all the Bible. And you start to think about all that falls under the job description of a shepherd, you start to see why. I mean, it's a comprehensive and intimate job description. You're taking care of everything for your flock. You're feeding them, watering them, protecting them, rescuing them, guiding them. And um, the thing is, it's not the most affirming job in the world either. I mean, I've never worked as a shepherd, per se, but my guess is you don't get a lot of positive feedback from your people, right? I mean, the sheep, they're a pretty dim bunch. They're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. I actually spent a weekend one time on a sheep farm in New Zealand. Okay, don't ask me how I got there. I don't even know. But uh, Saturday's activities included helping this rancher, this shepherd, herd a flock of sheep from one um, field into another one, okay? So we're And by help, I mean, I stayed as far away as I could from what was going on, and the sheepdogs did everything, and it was actually amazing. I mean, those guys, that's impressive. We're trying to get this flock from one field to another, and they're all going through a gate. And uh, one of the sheep um, gets stuck behind, like kind of pinned in between the gate and the fence, you know? And all his buddies are going this way, through the gate, and he knows he's supposed to go that way too. But instead of having any sort of self-awareness whatsoever and thinking, gosh, I could just take two steps backwards and go through the gate with my friends, he just continually bashed his head over and over against the fence posts that was directly in front of him, right? Because he doesn't know what's going on until the shepherd, shaking his head, walks over, grabs the dumb animal by the neck, drops him on the other side of the fence, and then he's free to go. Now, um, until that shepherd... Oh, I'm sorry, you know this. Um, You know this. I didn't have to tell that story for you to know this. Sheep are not the smartest animals, okay? You also maybe know this. The Bible's metaphor for us is that we're the sheep, 
isn't it? Okay? We're the sheep. David, himself a shepherd, wrote this psalm saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I know what it's like, David's saying, to fight off lions to protect my people, my sheep, and I need that exact same kind of protection every day. I know what it's like to lead them to fields of nourishment and refreshment, and I need to be led just like that, or I'm going to spiritually shrivel up and starve. I know what it's like to pull the same dumb sheep out from behind because he's too directionally challenged to get out of the problems he created for himself. And I need to be rescued and set free by a loving, patient rescuer in exactly the same way. In John 10, Jesus tells us, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. What I'm proposing is this is exactly the kind of leadership our souls crave, okay? An intimate shepherd guide, a protector, a savior, a warm hand who knows us by name, whose voice we trust, someone who sees that whole big picture of our lives, and even though we can't get past the fence post directly in front of our face, sets us free into space, into freedom, into life. This is how God guides his children, his followers. It's his manner, his tone, his disposition towards us. He's not formulaic. He's not running us through a 10-step Christian-making discipleship program. He's intimately and comprehensively giving us everything we need for a life to follow him. He's deeply patient. Um, And let me just suggest that the offer of being known that deeply flaws and all, sins and all, and to still be loved that deeply is exactly what we're craving for, name it or not. We want to follow that kind of guide and shepherd through life. So the next question is, if that's how God leads us, where? Where is God taking his people? And where God leads us, I think, is somewhat of a surprising answer from Psalm 23. Now, it's not surprising if you understand who God is, but it's surprising to me because this is usually not the place that I regularly ask God to lead me, okay? So if you pray, and I hope you do, uh, think about the kinds of things that you tend to pray for. What's on the top of your list regularly, naturally? If you're like me, Most of them are about prayers for guidance and clarity about the future. So God, should I move to a valley in Colorado I've never heard of and be the pastor of a bunch of people that I've never met before? You know, how about some clarity on that one? Or Jesus, how do I handle this parenting situation, right? I'm looking for wisdom. I'm looking for clarity about the future. Or a close second to that is that I'm praying for a change in circumstances in my life or someone else's, you know, Jesus, would you, would you heal the chronic pain in my friend's back? Jesus, help us find a good place to live for our kids. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with these prayers. God loves all of our prayers. He even teaches us to pray exactly this way. When he teaches us to pray for our daily bread, that's the mundane, normal, day-in, day-out stuff that concerns our life. But all of these, I think, our prayers reveal the place we hope God leads us, right? We're hoping that he guides us into clarity 
or maybe more effectiveness and impact for his kingdom, ministry, success, whatever it is. That's my default mode. That's why I find Psalm 23 so surprising because here we see God intends to lead his people first and foremost into rest. Okay? Rest. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These images are not about future clarity. They're not even about improved circumstances. In fact, we see him leading us into a valley of darkness and confusion, right? Um, these are not, uh, he's not leading us necessarily into more effectiveness or efficiency for God's kingdom. This is not a promise of new strategies or growth metrics or better health. These images, in some ways, are the opposite of all that, okay? Instead of more activity and effectiveness, God, we read, makes his children lie down. Now, I like this image because I'm a parent of small children, okay? And anyone who's been around small children knows what that verse means, okay? There is a point in every toddler's life where they are so wiped out and they need that nap so badly, but they're fighting it tooth and nail to the bitter end, and you have to make them lie down, okay? Not because you don't love them, but because you love them very, very much. And if there's anything that little body needs and that little mind needs and that little soul needs, it's just to stop, right? And just to sleep and just to recoup. And so out of love, we make our children lie down. And we are that toddler, okay? That's what Psalm's telling us. Psalm 23 is telling us that we need rest, We were not designed to live off of our achievements and productivity and output. We were designed to live in restful and a restful spirit in relationship with our God. Our bodies are limited. Our our minds are limited. Our our souls are little. And we need to be revived. We need recuperation. And God makes us lie down to rest. And when he does, he puts us in green pastures. Besides still waters. These are images of refreshment and nourishment. These are receiving gifts that we couldn't have produced on our own. This is goodness from the outside being given to us. And thank goodness for verse 4, right? I mean, if you're reading this psalm and there's no verse 4, I don't know if it makes any sense, right? We're reading along and this psalm wouldn't work. It would be too dreamy. It'd be too picturesque. I mean, it wouldn't sound like reality and think, David, what world do you live in? Green, cool pastures and like still waters? Um, That's not reality. But verse 4 tells us this is actually about reality. God made a promise that he is leading his people into rest even in the midst of our darkest days and our hardest struggles. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Is there a better promise in the Bible than those those few lines? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's always leading, guiding into rest. So even with full calendars, God leads people towards restful hearts. And even with anxious fears, God leads his people towards peace, not escapism or self-medication. 
Even with uncertainty, God can lead his people toward contentment. The surprising answer that Psalm 23 gives is that God's destination for you is quiet and stillness and rest. Why? Why is that where your shepherd wants to lead you first and foremost? I think the answer to that question is not only the key to Psalm 23, but in a lot of ways it's the key to Christianity. It's the key to understanding the Bible, and it's this. God is not concerned with leading us into more effectiveness and efficiency and activity and greater achievement for him. Look, he's good, okay? Whatever he wants to get done in this world, he's going to get done in this world. His main objective for you is he wants to lead you into a place of a greater relationship with him because that's where we get fixed, right? That's where we get healed. That's where he restores our souls. He wants us to work right, not just physically and mentally and socially, but emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. He wants to repair what's broken and renew what's old and worn out. And the only way for us to work right is when we're with God. I read a great book a couple years ago called A Praying Life. It's by a guy named Paul Miller. I'd recommend it to you. In it, it, he writes this, any relationship, if it's going to grow, needs private space, time, together without an agenda, where you can get to know each other. We know this in the human world. Efficiency, multitasking, and busyness, all of that kills intimacy. In short, you can't get to know God on the fly. Okay? That doesn't happen accidentally. And so we see throughout the whole Bible, God regular, regularly, normatively meets his people in stillness and in quiet. Okay, just a couple examples. First Kings 19, Isaiah, the prophet, he's running from the evil Queen Jezebel who's trying to kill him. Okay? And if there ever was a valley of the shadow of death, Isaiah's in it right now, okay? He's running away. He's literally praying to God that he would die so it could just be over. He wants to be done with it all. And in verse 11, we read this. This is how God restores the soul of Elijah. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains, broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And that's where Elijah met God, in the quiet, still sound of a low whisper. In Isaiah 30, when God rebukes his people for following any leader other than him, okay? They're just looking for anybody. Like, get us out of trouble. We'll take whoever it is. They go to Pharaoh. They think he's strong enough to protect them from the Babylonian powers and all this stuff. And, and God says, stubborn children, who carries out a plan but not mine and who makes an alliance but not of my spirit, right? He's saying, we're all following somebody. You, you hitched your wagon to Pharaoh. You're quick to follow him. But in verse 15, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and in rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Plans, alliances, strategies, busyness, that's not going to save you. Powerful people to follow, that's not going to save you. This is what's going to save you. Repentance and rest. Quietness and trust. Another psalmist in Psalm 46 says, 
Be still and know that I am God. And then Jesus, of course, we read this earlier, says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why is rest, quietness, stillness, the normal place that Jesus meets his people throughout the Bible in order to restore them? I think it's because that's where we can actually know him, right, without an agenda. We're, we're not so busy and distracted, but we meet him, we experience him, and that's what changes us. That's what transforms us, is encountering the love of God. Okay, so here's a question for us to consider. God is leading you into rest, says Psalm 23. Here's a question. Are you following him there? Okay? Are you following your shepherd into the rest that he provides? Are you actively, intentionally cultivating spaces of quiet, of stillness, where God promises he will meet his people and restore their souls? Okay, now just to be clear, I got to be a little careful here, you know, caveats and stuff. Um, Just to be clear, I'm not saying the only way we're going to grow as Christians is when we forsake the noisy world and society and go off into the desert and live as monks, right? I mean, that's been tried. People did that. Um, I don't think that's the normal way God is asking us to grow closer to him. This is not about the circumstances we find ourselves in. This is about a disposition of our hearts, okay? And I know I'm talking to a wide range of people in this room. I'm talking to empty nesters. I'm talking to very full nesters, okay? I get you, people. Like, I'm one of you people. Um, And I know that quietness and stillness is like a pipe dream. Like, what are you talking about, Luke? You know, I have four children. I know. Um, I'm talking to married. I'm talking to singles. I'm talking to people who have been in this valley forever and some who just got here and want to stay. But here's the point. This isn't about our circumstances. It's about the disposition of our hearts to want to know and encounter and meet God. And are we setting up some sort of practical structures and habits to move us towards him in the day-to-day chaos of life? Because here's the thing. Soul rest, it's not going to happen on accident. Okay? You know what is going to happen on accident? Schedules that are packed to the brim with no margin. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, they happen on accident. Um, sitting down at the, on the couch at the end of the night and flipping through the TV, that happens on accident. Uh, restlessness, distraction, all of that happens on accident. Quietness and stillness, that only happens on purpose. So God's leading you to rest. Are you following him? Just for a minute, I want to offer what I hope are practical suggestions. Now, these are not prescriptions from an expert. These are suggestions just to get us thinking in this vein, okay? From a fellow distracted, addicted to my phone as much as any of you, I promise, fellow pilgrim, how can we start to cultivate and spaces to encounter God? Take with this what you want. Here's a few. Seek silence. If we sit in silence for more than five minutes and don't read a book, and don't scroll through Twitter, and we the external chaos, you know what's going to happen? The internal chaos is going to start to reveal itself. And when that happens, don't run away from it, okay? Because that is where God goes to work on us. Henry Nouwen um, is, a, is a favorite author of mine. He wrote, he wrote this, as soon as we're alone, inner chaos opens up in us. 
This chaos can be so disturbing and confusing, we can hardly wait to get busy again. Entering a private room, shutting the door, it doesn't mean we immediately shut out all the inner doubts, anxieties, fears, bad memories, unresolved conflicts, angry feelings, and impulsive desires. On the contrary, when we've removed the outer distraction, we find that our inner distraction manifests themselves to us in full force. We often use the outer distraction to shield ourselves from the interior noises. This makes the discipline of solitude all the more important. When you feel anxious, instead of asking, how can I get out of this as fast as possible? Ask why. Why am I anxious about this thing? What am I trusting in? What am I finding my identity in here that's being threatened? And then, God, can you help address that with the gifts of your gospel? So as we put away the external chaos, let the internal chaos flow. And that's where God will meet us and heal us. Second, fast from the frenetic. You've heard of fasting from food. Um, I want to suggest a fast from screen time or devices, okay? Uh, Maybe this is a week off TV or a month. Maybe this is a night off the phone. Vacation. Imagine that, right? Imagine that. Uh, If you're anything like me, I fill every extra 30 seconds I have by scrolling through something, okay? And what it does is it just makes my mind busy. It just fills my life. Uh, Mark Buchanan wrote a book called The Rest of God. It's another great one um, if you're interested in looking at it. But in it, he, he noted this, um, this fact or this illustration that the Chinese um, character for the word busyness, it combines um, two characters into a single one. And the two characters it combines are heart and killing. And he says this is incredibly incisive on on the part of the Chinese language, that busyness in the Chinese language means heart-killing because it really is our heart that takes the highest toll and, and pays for the busyness of our life. We're running up a tab, but I think a lot of us don't know. Last one. Um, and this one I would, uh, is uh, I just titled Redesign Your Sabbath. And what I mean here is uh, God made this a top 10 one for a reason, okay? Honor the Lord, um, or honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. One day in seven, set aside normal work and activity to rest your heart in worshiping with God's people and to do things that aren't part of your normal week that restore you physically, mentally, spiritually, and then to look for ways to serve those around you. So what could it look like for you and your family to cease from the normal activity one day in seven and redesign that time with this in mind. Refreshment, stillness, quiet before the Lord. Again, these aren't prescriptions. These are just ideas to get the wheels spinning. Okay, I need this as much as any of you guys. And if you have other suggestions, I'd love to hear them. But the impulse here is to ask, if God leads his people to rest, where he plans to meet us, and restore us, and make us work right, what steps are we taking to intentionally follow him there? The Lord is our shepherd. Do you hear his voice? Do you follow his steps? God leads us with great care. He leads us into rest, and very briefly, he leads us by his grace. The last two verses of this psalm, David changes his imagery from God as our shepherd 
to God as a dinner host, uh, laying out a meal for his people, a party, a meal of abundance. He changes the metaphor, but not the point. God leads his people to this table, it says, in the very presence of our enemies. In the face of our foes, God invites us to a celebration meal. Now, this kind of meal was a sort of party you throw after you won the prize, okay? After you completed the race and emerged victorious. But here, God throws this party for his people while we're still staring our foes in the face, still in the valley of the shadow of death, still our hearts restlessly seeking for a leader or a guide anywhere other than God, Right in that moment, God makes promises to us that secure us in his love forever. How can he promise to restore our souls, to lead us to rest, to anoint us with oil, forgive our sins, make us whole, bring us home to heaven, and all the riches of the gospel? How can he promise all that stuff before the journey's even over? Like, how does he know if we're actually going to follow his lead all the way home? Because here's why. He's not only our leader but he's our pursuer. Okay, look at verse six. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. As we follow God through this world, he's following us as well. Okay, he is hemming us in, in the front and behind, on the sides. He is securing us in his love and his grace, saying, you will not fall off the path that I have set you on because it's not on the basis of your faithfulness and obedience that you're saved, but on the basis of mine, okay? I died for you, I raised again, and that secures you in my family if you continue to look to me in faith. That is grace, okay? That's how he leads us with his care and follows us with his grace. Um, I just want to ask, do you hear that this morning? Okay, do you hear how secure and safe and rich that promise is. The certainty of David's final line, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How can he know that? He can only know that if it's on the basis of God's promises to him, basis of his own obedience. Those are the great promises made to us by God who promises to keep us to the end, whatever the cost. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want What a great psalm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for being our leader and our guide and our shepherd through this world. Um, We are so regularly lost and disoriented and confused and uncertain and afraid. And I just pray this morning that you would help us rest our souls in the certainty of your love that you not only are before us, guiding us where we need to go, but you're behind us, pursuing us with your mercy and your love all the days of our life. And we shall dwell in your house forever. Help these, these promises secured for us by Jesus and the gospel sink in deep into our bones. Help us believe it and live in light of it. We ask these things in your name. Amen.